I'm going to invite up my good friend Luke, who's going to speak to us this morning on Ephesians chapter 5. And um, let's pray for Luke as he brings the word of God to us. Father, thank you so much uh, for this man, for his heart um, that loves you and loves your people. Uh, Lord Jesus, I do pray this morning. Uh, that you would speak wonderfully through him. Lord Jesus, that you would give us soft hearts as well to hear what you're saying to us. Uh, Lord, we, we, we do submit ourselves and come under the word of God, um, what scripture says. And Father, I just pray as he speaks to us this morning that you'd speak so uh, clearly into our hearts, uh, so, so gently, so helpfully. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, Holy Spirit. You're the one who leads us into all truth. Uh, so we invite you this morning. We come with hearts of worship as Luke speaks. Amen. 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 Thank you, Phil. Um, always need a big lectern. Um, my name's Luke. I'm one of the pastors here um, at Life Church, and it's really, really brilliant to be um, together this morning. If this is your first time or one of your first times, I know I met one or two of you um, this morning, but uh, you're so welcome here. We're so uh, pleased you came along this morning, and we just uh, pray that you're blessed uh, as you're among us uh, this morning. Um, so we're continuing in our series through the letter of the, to the Ephesian church. Uh, and last week, Rachel so brilliantly looked, at, uh, looked with us at the end of chapter four, how we, uh, because Jesus has made us alive, we must live like we're alive. Because God has made us new creations, we must put on our new selves. And she gave that wonderful um, picture of you don't come in from being soaking wet in the rain and just put on a snuggly dressing gown on top of your coat. No, you take off your old self before you put on your new self. And the scriptures encouraged us to be truthful, to be patient, to be forgiving and gentle and kind. In other words, it encouraged us to be loving towards one another. But today, we're really gonna dive into the question, what motivates us to live like this? Because when we realise time and again that following Jesus is costly and is painful, we need to know what are the things that drive us? What are the reasons we're doing it for? And I believe there is good news for that this morning. And this morning, we're going to talk about sex and sexuality, because that's what the scripture talks about. And each one of us, in a small way or a big way, will probably be uncomfortable or challenged or even offended by some of the things that we talk about this morning. But can I encourage you to keep going and hold on with me? Because I do believe as we see who God is and we see the wonderful life that he calls us to in him, that it will be worth the cost of following him. So let's read together Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verses 1 to 17. Um, I'm reading from the ESV, um, but uh, there'll be words on the screen to follow along with. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ and God. 
Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. There's a viral trend um, that's going around different things on social media where uh, 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 some kind of influencer has a hidden camera and they go up to someone and they say, oh, really sorry, I forgot my wallet. You, you wouldn't mind buying me a coffee, would you? And if the person says yes, they say, oh, it was a trick. There's cameras all around and everyone who says yes, I'm going to give them $1,000 today or £1,000. A few of you would have seen that. I wonder, how would you define a life that is lived for love? Would you define it as going around handing out £1,000 gifts to random strangers who might buy you coffee? Or would you define it as trying to make as many people happy as you can? Or maybe by trying to care for that one special someone in your life? What's interesting is from those who follow Jesus to those who have no religion at all, trying to answer the question, what is a life that is lived for love drives so many of us? It's a question so many people strive to answer. And so the answer to that, especially as Christians, is vital. In some ways, we live in a society which is more loving than ever, a wonderfully loving society. It's quite stark at the moment, thinking about the World Cup coming up, that we're grateful we're in a country which many of the human rights and protections of workers, especially immigrants, is, is a blessing, but not true in all parts of the world. And we live in a society where, in many ways, there is a sense of national consciousness of the care of the vulnerable and marginalised. In many ways, we should thank God for the love that is evident in the world around us in our society. But we also live in a society whose definition of love is constantly changing. You might know the phrase or use the phrase, love is love. It's a bit of a pop psychology phrase, which is um, kind of thrown down to end an argument. And what I understand that to mean is whatever is acting in a way that I believe is loving, as long as it doesn't hurt others, is loving. And there's lots of good in that. But I do believe it's flawed. Because when our definition of loving others is based on me, and what I believe or I feel, we run into issues. Firstly, I don't know about you, but I change quite a lot. I change quite a lot. And so a definition based on me will be constantly changing. Also, what I might believe might be different from what you believe. And so to try and build a society or structures based on something where we fundamentally might contradict is very difficult. But I think the biggest problem right at the heart of the self-actualized view that our society lives with of a definition of love, is that right at its centre is me. What I believe. What I want. 
the stark way to put it is at the heart of that definition, it's self-centred. And yet I do believe that the passage we have this morning gives us a surer foundation of what does it really mean to live a life of love. So what we're going to do today, we're going to, um, we've read the passage all together, but we're going to walk through it slowly and we're going to draw things out. So let's read again verses one and two together. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When we ask, what does it look like to walk in love as Christians? We look to Jesus, don't we? His self-giving, self-sacrificing, other-centred love. He gave his life for us. What a beautiful phrase in that passage. Christ gave himself for us. And if we want to live a life of love, we as Christians follow in his footsteps. We give our lives to serving not ourselves, but others. To be honest though, you might be thinking, well, lots of people do that and they're not Christians. I know lots of people who are incredibly self-sacrificing, who are incredibly loving of others, who actually give their whole lives for the sake of other people. And that's true. That is true. So what's the difference in living a life of love as a Christian? Well, I think the difference is answered by the question, why do you love others? And you'll notice in verse two, it says this. We love other people and Christ loved others as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He loved us. Why? Ultimately, it was worshipped. It was, it was to honour the Father who sent him. It was to bring glory to himself and the Father. Ultimately, we love others as Christians, not to satisfy something in ourselves, but to honour and worship God. In verse one, it says we're beloved children. That's the place we do it from, beloved children. And so our definition of love must be anchored on what he says and who he is. A definition not based on what I feel or what pleases me or what sounds right to me even, but on him and what he says. To truly walk in love is to live for God, giving our lives to care and bless for others. But why? As a simple act of worship to the one who loved us, the one who in fact loved us so much that in the ultimate act of love, he sent Christ for us. To live a life of love is to love others, but to do it for his glory. And so with this definition of walking in love, living a life of love, a giving of ourselves to others, but ultimately for God's glory and for his worship, you might be asking, why does that impact our sexuality? because I said we were going to talk about this, that this morning. And that's where Paul goes next. Because sex is one of the big three, isn't it? Money, sex, power. It affects all of us. Whether you are young or whether you're old, whether you are married or divorced or single or widowed or whatever, sexuality is part of how we were made. God made each one of us as sexual beings, male and female. That's what it says on the first page of the Bible. And so this matters to each and every one of us. So let's carry on reading from verse three uh, to verse five. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which is out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving, 
For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. From this passage, it's clear that as Christians, we are to stay away from sexual immorality. I think that's, that's, that's one thing that's clear. But we might be asking, well, what, what does the Bible mean when it says sexual immorality? So let's quickly look at what the Bible means when it talks about sex. Sex is a gift from God. That's how the Bible describes it. Now, sex is not a fundamental human right. And it's not a necessity for a satisfied and fulfilled life. Actually, we look at Jesus himself, the most human human being, the perfect one. And he was never married and he never had sex. And yet, sex is a good gift from God when used in the context he designed it for. And from the first page of the Bible and the whole way through, it is the permanent, lifelong, loving commitment between one man and one woman, which we call marriage, that is the context that God made sex for. That's what the Bible defines as the healthy and life-giving place for the gift of sex. And so what's the biblical definition of sexual immorality? Well, it's anything outside of that context, any activity uh, or behaviour outside of marriage. Now, you might be asking, but I still don't understand. We were trying to talk about living a life of love and we're, we're talking about what, what is sex and why did God make it for? Why does what happened in my bedroom, why, why does God care about that? Why does God care what I do with my body? And to be honest, depending on where we're at in the room, already we might be actually quite offended that anyone would tell us what to do with our own body. Because we live in a world which says no one can tell you what you do with your own body apart from yourself. And so the idea that God is telling you what he thinks is right or wrong for your body can be really offensive for all of us, whether or not we are Christians. But I think Paul really helpfully draws out why it matters to God. I think he draws out quite insightful and nuanced things of why this matters so much to him. Did you notice Paul uses three different words? I, I didn't really enjoy English at school. I was definitely the maths kid, um, but we're going to do a little bit of comprehension, okay? Does that, that probably fills you with more dread than talking about sex. But anyway, we're going we're gonna to do a little bit of comprehension because there are three words here that Paul uses to talk about sexual sin. The first one is immorality. Now, what does that mean? Let's just do a bit of um, definition of that. We talked about that a bit already, but morality, morality is a framework for what is right and wrong. That's, just what it, that's simply what the word means. And so when we talk about sexual immorality, we're talking about the things that God says are not good when it comes to sex. So that's what sexual immorality is. The second word he uses is impurity. Now, impurity um, is a word in the Bible um, that is to do with a moral uncleanness of our heart. And so... If immorality is about kind of external behaviours, what the choices we make, the rights and wrongs, then immorality is getting to a more nuanced look at the heart within, the kind of the, 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 the rot and the damage that goes on in our heart, which leads to those decisions. And the third word is an interesting one. It's covet or covetous. You might be thinking, well, what's that got to do with sexual sin or sex in, in anything? Well, I'll just remind you that the 10th commandment, um, if you know anything about the Old Testament and the laws that were given to the Israelites, the 10th commandment is do not covet. And it goes on to give examples. Do not covet 
your neighbor's wife. And so all three of these words is actually Paul drawing out nuance of what sexual sin does to us, what sexual sin comes from, because I think what Paul is doing here is he's showing us that there are lies that we believe about God which are behind our sin. And this is true of sexual sin, but this is true of all sin. So let's explore what lies that we can believe about God, which actually lead to us walking away from him. Let's think about sexual immorality first. This is really saying, I want to choose what's right or wrong. I want to define what I think is best. At the root of that is a belief that God's definition of right or wrong will not do me good. Actually, God, I, I'm not sure God knows what's best for me. That's at the heart of immorality, a choice to say I don't trust God's way of right and wrong. What about impurity? A heart which says, uh, a heart which is stained by sexual sin and doesn't care about offending God. Well, what's behind sexual immorality often is saying I don't care what God thinks about me because I don't think God cares about me. Why would God care about how I live if God doesn't even care about who I am as a person? He just wants to set rules, but he doesn't care about me as an individual. Or what might be behind covetousness? A heart that wants what it wants, no matter what. A heart where maybe sex or sexuality are its God. Covetousness is fueled by a belief that God will not satisfy us. And there is grass that is greener elsewhere because he is not enough. This is so helpful because actually behind all sin are lies that God is not who he says he is. And Paul skillfully draws that out. Actually, did you notice in verse five, he adds a fourth word. He talks about immorality, impurity and covetousness. But he then says, that is an idolater. What's idolatry? It is worshipping someone other than the true God. Because when we believe these lies about God, we are not coming to the true God. We're not coming to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're coming to a twisted and broken caricature of who he is. Because let me tell you, the true God defines right or wrong to do us good, to care for us, to protect us and bring life to us. The true God cares about the state of your heart because he cares about you as an individual. And the true God, when you know him through Jesus Christ, deeply, deeply satisfies our deepest longings. With him, the grass is never greener. It is wonderfully, vibrantly, kind of scary cupcake coloured green when you're with him. Idolatry is the heart of sexual sin and actually, actually all sin because it is fed on the lie that our God is not who he says he is. Let's carry on reading verses six and seven. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Let no one deceive you. Our God, the true God, his wrath and his anger is against sin. There is a judgment day where he will pour out his wrath on the wrongdoings on the sons of disobedience. That's a phrase that was defined a few chapters earlier, which means anyone who is not covered by the blood of Jesus. God looks at the sin in our lives, the things where we reject him, where we say no to him, where we do not trust him. And actually God will judge those actions. The Bible is clear on that. 
It's uncomfortable, but it's clear on that. And so we must take the warning seriously. Let no one deceive you. God cares about our sex lives. It matters what we do with our bodies. And the world around us will say, stop worrying. It's up to you what you do with your own body. Don't let anyone tell you. And sadly, even some dear Christians, brothers and sisters of ours, though well-meaning, will tell us that teachings like these are out of date or are no longer relevant. And I feel a great pressure to preach on a passage like this and pick up everything that doesn't touch on sexuality, ignoring the fact that that is the highlight at the heart of this passage. I feel that pressure. But Paul's warning is serious. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. Because there are those out there who do not yet know Jesus. And we can't just look at it and say, it doesn't matter. Leave them in their brokenness. But we say, no, the wrath of God is coming there. And so we pray and we outwork and we say, Lord, let your blood cover them. Because that is what each one of us needs. Sin, which is the attitudes and actions that reject God's ways and purposes, will be judged. And these things matter to God so much that it's not even fitting as Christians to just be flippant about sex or joke about it. It's striking that Paul opens up in verse three saying, look, don't be crude. Don't be filthy in your language because these things are serious. These things are are things that are important to God. And we're also told not just to clean up our language, but to not partner with those who participate in such acts whether it's going along with a crowd to a party and making out with the person you meet there, whether it's sitting around the coffee machine with with the guys at work and rating the women of the office, whether it's living with our partners before we're married. These things are normal to the world. They're normal to the world. But as Christians, Jesus says, don't partner with them. Don't partner with them. Verse two told us, living a life of love is sacrifice. It's a sacrifice to God. Following Jesus is costly. But who is the one we're following? He's the one who gave everything for us. Our God takes sex seriously. And sex is a gift from God, which he has given a context to which it is to be used. And we must trust that he is good and loving in that. This is heavy stuff. This is heavy stuff. And as we discuss how serious God is about sexual sin, you may be wondering, what is this God? Who is this God that the Bible speaks about? Maybe at best you think he's this kind of strict Victorian schoolmaster who's there just to ruin our fun. At worst, you hear these words and you think he is a nasty, bigoted, self-interested person who crushes who I think I truly am. But we must always remember what is the context we hear the challenge to trust God in. And the context is the gospel. The context is Jesus. We'll read from verse seven. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children as light. My dear brothers and sisters, you were darkness. Not you were in darkness, you were darkness. At your heart, at my heart, I was rotten and sinful and rejected God, and yet Christ made you light. That is what Christ does. He takes us from darkness and makes us light. Remember what Ephesians 2 promised us, the foundations of these passages. Ephesians 2 said, you were dead in your trespasses. Ephesians 2 verse 4 says, but God being rich in mercy because of the 
great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sin, even when we were dead in our sin, made us alive with Christ. He loved us when we were dead. And because Jesus has made us light, therefore walk in light. That is the call. That's what Rachel showed us last week. He has given you a new creation. Therefore, put it on. He has made you light. Therefore, walk in that light. Because though it is hard to walk away from our past, and to be honest, some of us will have to make life-changing decisions if we really want to follow Jesus. And we may not understand the full implications of why God wanted us to do it until we are with him in glory. If we know who our God is, if we know that he is the one who when we were dead sent Christ for us, then we know he is able to be trusted and able for us to give our lives to follow him. And light is really important with sexual sin because sexual sin is often a hidden thing in the recesses of our heart. Whether it's the subtle indulgences of our eyes as we walk down the street and stare at an attractive stranger, or the hidden dependence on pornography that we run to when no one else is looking, or the flirty WhatsApp messages which do no harm to someone who isn't our spouse. Sex, uh, sexual sin, as all sin does, feeds on darkness. When I was uh, 20 years old, I was a few months into university, and through my teenage years, I had wrestled with pornography. And I was sat down with a good friend of mine who I knew for a long time, and uh, we were praying together, and God spoke to me, and he said something terrifying. Speak to your dad. Now, my dad's an amazing dad. I love my dad. What a wonderful dad he's been to me all my life. But I did not want to speak to my dad about pornography. But I knew God was saying that to me. Because I knew every time I went home from ho uh, on holiday from university, I went to a place where I was living in darkness. No one knew what was going on in my heart. And do you know what I felt like? I felt entrapped by my sin. I felt suffocated. I felt isolated. I felt like it had the power over me. And so God said, talk to your dad. And so a few months later, when I next kind of um, went home for, on holiday, I said to my dad through gritted teeth, do you want to go for a walk in the park sometime? And at that moment, I brought my darkness into the light. And God broke something of the power it had over me. You see, the light of Christ is good. When we bring our darkness to God, he doesn't condemn us or reject us. He doesn't say, what? No, I'm not going near you now. No, what God does when the light of Christ shines on us is he restores us. He redeems us. He heals us. And he calls us to walk, no longer as we used to in darkness, but in the light that he made us for. And when the, God's light shines on us, it produces beautiful things in our heart. This is what verse eight and nine say. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Do you notice Paul gives three words? He gave three words earlier, didn't he? Good, right, and true. And I wonder whether Paul is showing us that the light of Christ can do in our hearts something that no immorality or impurity or covetousness could ever achieve. No, they're things of death but the light of Christ are things of life. You see, the light of Christ is good. Sex might promise us satisfaction, 
And that's a half truth. We might enjoy the pleasures that sex brings, or we might feel loved or accepted because of the attention or security that being in a sexual relationship brings. But pleasure ends and relationship hits, uh, relationships hit rocky patches and life changes. And sex, if we're honest, many of us will know, never fully satisfies. It promises it, but it doesn't meet it. And yet God does. God fully satisfies. God brings us into a community where we are known and loved, where we have acceptance and security, not from what someone else wants from us, but because of what Christ has done for us. A community which isn't temporary, is not a pleasure which ends soon, but actually marriage ends, the church is eternal. God gives us contentment, which is permanent. And you know what? The church is only the start. He gives us himself. We can know deep satisfaction because God himself is given to us. Whether we are married or not, whether we have a satisfying sex life or whether we have deep longing for more, we have a God who brings us deep satisfaction, a contentment for our souls, which all earthly pleasures are just shadows and echoes of the true satisfaction found in knowing Christ. You see, sex promises satisfaction, but it can't deliver. And many of us know that. Many of us know that deep in our hearts. God provides And the light of Christ isn't just good, it's right. We sometimes can believe that our sexuality will bring us freedom. And that's a rhetoric we hear quite often. You choose, you do what you want, you define who you are. Total freedom to make the rules. About 10 years ago, I was walking in Chicago with a friend. And uh, we walked past the street and my friend turned to me and quite casually said, this street we're about to cross has the highest level of gun murders in all of the US. In some ways, I was on a street that had complete freedom from what to do. I had complete freedom of, of you know, retribution from, from the law. And yet that was not a place I felt free. Because if our definition of a freedom is to have no boundaries and to have no one outside telling us what to do, then our definition is a freedom which leads to death. Because the freedom to sleep with someone who isn't our spouse destroys a family. And the freedom to sleep around put chains of disappointment and brokenness and emptiness around our hearts when relationships split up. And the freedom to privately indulge in pornography is fueling an industry which is really built on human trafficking and drug addiction. That is no freedom at all. But the light of Christ is right. The light of Christ for those of us who are married, puts a context of marriage which says, this is where you are to invest. This is your definition of love and beauty. And you are to work at this and give yourself to this and you will know great satisfaction, not because everything will go the way you want it to, but because you will learn that to give is better than to receive and to trust me in things is a great fulfillment of life. The light of Christ is right because it protects our hearts rather than sleeping around and knowing damage It frees us from the chains of the broken relationships and say, no, save the gift for the context that I give to you if I give it to you. And actually better than that, we all walk with regrets. We all walk with damage. And the light of Christ says, I will bring redemption and healing to the brokenness in your heart from your past mistakes because we all live with them. And the light of Christ exposes darkness. And so the shameful consequences of our sin which entrap 
and cripple others can be replaced with an opportunity to stand up for the oppressed and the vulnerable and say that is not how we live life as human beings. Finally, sexuality promises, uh, sorry, finally the light of Christ is not just good and right, but is true. And sexuality often promises us identity. But let me tell you, it is not a sure identity. The identity we can build our life on is one from Christ. The chapter ago, uh, the passage we did last week, tells us that we have been given new selves. We've been created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's not to do with how you are, the choices you make or how you live. That's based on who God is. In verse one of our passage, it says we're beloved children. You see, God gives us an identity which is a sure foundation. The fruit of the light of Christ, living in the accomplishments of what he did and in the life that he calls us to is good and is right and is true. Everything else the world offers is a dim shadow. And as we come and start to wrap up, I do want to encourage us that I, I genuinely believe as Christians, this is good news. It's really challenging news. And that's what I said at the beginning. There, there are things that have been said today in the scripture or from what I expounded from it that will be hard or offensive to us. But I do believe it's good. But you know what? I also believe it's good for those who don't know Jesus. Let's read uh, just, yeah, the penultimate chunk, verses 8 to 14. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that is visible is light. Let's just quickly talk about the phrase expose them. Because you might look at that and be a bit like, what, what does that mean? What I don't think it means, and I think if you look at the, the breadth of Scripture in the New Testament, it doesn't mean we go up to people and be judgmental. It doesn't mean we go up to people who don't know Jesus and tell them you're wicked, you're wrong. Do you know what? The, the, John 3 says Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world. Um, actually, those who don't trust in Christ are already condemned. No, we expose these things not as a judgmental condemning thing, but something quite different. I think this is what expose, it mean, expose the works of darkness means. I think it means as Christians, we are lights in the world. As Christians, we live differently. And as we live our lives, we will come into contact with our friends and our neighbours who don't know Jesus, and they will notice that it looks different. And the reason I think expose it is a helpful phrase is because that will lead to uncomfortable conversations. That will lead to friction in relationships. But remember, the purpose of exposure is not to condemn is to shine the light of Christ on situations. And I wonder if you noticed that God breaks physics in this passage. Did you notice that God breaks physics? It says that anything is, ex uh, sorry, but when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. And anything that is visible becomes light. Now, I don't know about you, but when I turn a lamp on, it doesn't suddenly make everything it's shining on become a lamp. And yet that is what the light of Christ does. When the light of Christ shines on people, it has the opportunity to bring light to their lives. Because when we bring our darkness into God's light, it becomes light itself. Our past, our failures, the dark secrets which we may 
speak of, but we daily regret when we bring them to the light. God doesn't just expose them, but he turns them into light. He's able to actually even redeem and restore the most dark brokennesses of our heart and use it for his glory. And with our friends and our families and others who don't yet know Jesus, it may just be that uncomfortable conversation you have with them, which shines the light of Christ that they might realise, actually, you live differently to me and that's uncomfortable and I'm offended, but also there's something different and there's something more that you live with. That's what I think it means to expose the works of darkness. And so as we end, let's read the last few verses from verse 14. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and the light, uh, sorry, and Christ will shine on you. Be careful then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is when we know who our God truly is. The God who does take sin incredibly seriously, but the God who sent the Lord Jesus to take us from darkness to light and to give us a life of light, which is far more satisfying and sure a foundation than anything the world offers. When we know who he is, our hearts are no longer driven to try and work up our way to God. And they're not driven to run away from God but they're driven to say, I want to live a life of love as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to this God. And we will find that our hearts start to live by the mantra of verse 17. We will start to live in a way where we say to ourselves, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Where we say, I don't live my life for myself anymore. What I want what I desire, what I'm seeking, but I live my life for another, for the God who draws me into something that is so much better than any dream or purpose that I had for myself. And really as we end, and I promise we are ending now, let's go back to verse one and two. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Where do we start and end? Well, if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, then you are a beloved child of God. If you are in Christ, then you're one who Christ loved and gave himself up for. You once were darkness. Hallelujah, you are light in the Lord. And it is in that place we choose to live God's way to be imitators of God. It is in that place where we are so in awe and worship of who this God is that we can make the painful, sometimes life-altering choices to say, I trust him and I will follow him. And it is in that place that our lives become fragrant offerings, pleasing aromas to God and sacrifices to him. It is to God that we give the glory. Amen. We're going to respond. Um, the bands can um, jump up if uh, they're able to, but we're going to respond. And um, God will have hit different nerves. Uh, and that might be to do with sex, or to be honest, lots of this stuff is talking about just the state of our heart in general. Uh, so it might be nothing to do with that. But God will be speaking in this room. And there is good news that if God is who he says he is, then he is worth trusting. He is worth following. And so I would love 
uh, to do a couple of things. We will come to communion in a second, but what I would love to do first is to pray. We don't, we, we don't need to um, speak out loud if we don't want to have things that uh, we want to say, but if you this morning feel in your heart, you know what, there are things about God which I know are not true about him, but I just really struggle to believe it. There are lies in my heart that maybe God can't be trusted with telling me what's right or wrong. Maybe God doesn't care about um, who I am, so why should I care about what he thinks about what I do? Or maybe God isn't satisfying. If you know some of those lies in your heart and you want to be prayed for, then we're going to pray. So what we're going to do is this. We're all going to stand up if we're able to. Um, So let's stand together because we're going to um, continue our time to worship. Um, And if you particularly want prayer, um, this could be about anything, but if it's about things in our hearts which are not true about God, we're going to open our hands to the Lord. Now, if we're honest, we probably all need to open our hands to the Lord. But if God has particularly put something on your heart and you want prayer, let's open our hands to the Lord. And uh, I'm going to ask that God speaks and ministers to us by his Holy Spirit and shows us how good he is. Ephesians 2, it says, oh no, Ephesians 1, sorry. It says that Paul prays for the revelation of God through the spirit of revelation and wisdom, okay? So we're gonna pray that God opens our hearts. So um, yeah, as the band begins um, just to play in the background, um, we're gonna pray. So I'll encourage you, this is between you and God, but let's just open our hands if we feel, actually there are things in our heart which I do not believe about him. I know he says it in his word, but I just, I struggle to really trust it's true. And you might want to pray in your heart as I pray. Father God, we come to you and we know that it says you're good, but we struggle to really believe it. We know that it says you care, but we struggle to really live in it. We know it says you satisfy, but there's such longings in my heart. There's such pain and brokenness that I live with that it's, it's hard to believe it. Father, would you send your spirit to show us that it's true? Would you just minister to us now that the, the deep set lies in our hearts, maybe the strongholds of disbelief that live in us, that you would conquer them and destroy them in the name of Jesus. I just pray right now, it is your power spirit that you would meet and minister to us and you would do things in our heart today which re-establish a foundation on Christ, which allow us to live in the fullness, to walk as children of light, to know that we are beloved in the Lord, to know that we are those who can be imitators of our wonderful Father because we are loved by Him. Those who can live in love because Christ loved us. Holy Spirit, the the person who I think right now is crying out saying, but I'm alone, speak to them that you are with them. That's not my truth, that's your truth. The person that says I'm beyond repair right now, I believe someone is saying that in their heart. Show them that you are the one who brings darkness and turns it to light.
Now, if you feel like God is doing a particular thing um, in your heart and you'd love for someone to pray with you, I'd encourage you to be brave and lift your hands kind of in the air. And uh, if someone around you who, uh, who knows you, just say to them, would you be happy for me to pray with you? You don't need to have a long conversation, but let's pray for one another. Let's minister to one another. So I just encourage you, if that is you, uh, just raise your hand in the air and let's just spend a few minutes praying for one another. We are the body of Christ. This is what we do. Jesus.